Welcome to the 5 by your source for rapid-fire board game reviews. My name is Sarah, and today's episode is a recap of my favorite reviews from 2018. I hope they'll be among your favorite reviews, too. First, Mason reviews Michael Strogoff with its balance between co-op and competition, and between history and fiction. Then, Mike shows us that reviewing talent runs in the family when he and his daughter cover the charming game Tea Dragon Society. I'm a sucker for a good physics game, and next up, Ruth reviews Gravwell, which sounds like a great one. Then Ruel's review of Puzzly Ubongo makes me wonder why I don't own this game. It sounds right up my alley. Finally, Catherine introduced me to not only a great alternate history game, but a great author when she mentioned Naomi Novik in her review of Witches of the Revolution. Thanks, Kat. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Michael Strogoff. Back in episode 29, I talked about Devere Games, artist Pedro Soto, and the games that use copyright-free source material. The follow-up game in what I'm calling Devere's historical literature line is Michael Strogoff, a threat management race game based on Jules Verne's 1876 novel of the same game. Strogoff was released in late 2017 and designed by Alberto Corral, who you may know from 2013's also sort of co-op-ish thing, Castaways, often compared to Robinson Crusoe. In Michael Strogoff, you were a courier racing from Moscow across Siberia. The evil Colonel Ivan Ogarov, traitor to the Tsar, leads a Tartar invasion force to Irkutsk. You, a loyal Tsarist, must reach the city ahead of the invaders and warn the Grand Duke or the Empire will plunge into civil war. While based on a historical novel, it's worth noting here that none of this happened, or was really even possible in 1870s Russia. Though this isn't one of Verne's science fiction works, it's still speculative pulp, so don't go telling people you learned all about the Tartar Rebellion from the Five By, because it never happened. Michael Strogoff isn't exactly cooperative, but it's not strictly competitive either. It plays 1 to 5, and it scales well all the way up and down. I think that's mostly because there's zero interaction between the players. You're not competing for resources, not blocking each other, not getting each other's way. You're all just moving forward, turn after turn, as quickly as you dare, from Moscow to Irkutsk. At the end of every round, a card flips over, and the hated Colonel Ogorov moves forward as well, usually outpacing you. If he makes his way across Siberia before any of the players do, it's highly likely you'll all lose. Even if a player does manage to get to the city ahead of Ivan, you'll have to have enough save cards in your hand to duel Ogorov. One of you is going to die. Probably you. In this game, you're mostly managing the cards in your hand, mitigating threats, deciding how fast to push forward, and how much risk you're willing to assume doing so. Every time you choose to move, you have to draw a threat card. These pile up in front of you, and they each have at least one symbol on them. Match two wild animal claw symbols, and you've been attacked by bears in the forest. Now bad things are going to happen. All of your threat cards have a penalty. Lose a drop of blood, which is your life and strength in the game. Lose resources from your hand or flip root cards face down, which you'll have to spend at least one turn flipping back over before you can get back on the road. There's a lot going on mechanically in Michael Strogoff, so much so that it took us several plays to really get it all down. The rulebook is well laid out and everything is explained, but this is definitely a game you would benefit from being taught. There's a certain amount of end-of-round upkeep to handle. It's not that complex, but if you do it out of order or incorrectly, you can really screw up the flow and possibly break the game. Designer Alberto Corral has managed to do what many historically inspired games attempt and then fail at miserably. To abstract a simulation of events, maintain a narrative consistency, and have it all actually be a fun and playable game. It all just works, and once you've got a handle of the turn structure, the game does flow really well. After about 8 plays, we can get a 2 player game of Michael Strogoff in under around 30 minutes. The box size and component quality are really on point, as has been everything I've seen from Devere games so far. A huge draw for this one is the gorgeous art from Pedro Soto, who also illustrated Holmes, Sherlock, and Mycroft. And there's a lot of art in this game. Every card is beautifully illustrated and highly evocative, and it really made me wish Devere offered an art book for Strogoff like Ysteri did for Shakespeare. 
The box is square, but smaller than a Ticket to Ride size box and larger than the Cosmos 2 player patchwork size box. It's about 10 inches in slim, think the new Fantasy Flight Living Card Game boxes. Lots of high quality linen finished cards, high quality heavy tracking dice, and cool chunky custom shaped meeples. I paid full price, yes, that's right, full retail for this game at BGGCon after a single play because we liked it so much. It sells online right now for about $25, and if you're looking for value to money, this is it. The replayability in Michael Strogoff is super high, even though the variability is fairly low. I've tried a number of different strategies, and I'm good enough now that I can usually lose only one or two turns before I might have won instead of dying hopelessly in the Siberian wilderness. Because everyone is playing against the game at the same time, but not really against each other, it has a little bit of a cooperative feel, even though it's not co-op at all. Only one of you can win, but most likely everyone's going to lose, and more than likely everyone at the table will want to play again immediately. I will say my one game at 5 player was a little long, but that was a learning game and many of us were confused by it and didn't really have a good grip on the round mechanisms and the rules. If I were teaching a group of 4 new players, I might consider not actually playing myself and just talking through it and handling all the end of round business and Overoff's movements. So who should buy Michael Strogoff? People who love strategic race games. People who love Russian history, even though it's fake history. People who like to play against a game but also don't like sharing or collaboration. People who want a good Saturday morning solo game that they can also take to game night and people who really, really hate traitorous colonels. I give Michael Strogoff two out of two of my own eyes blinded by a burning scimitar in the Tartars' camp. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter to producer Mike Risley's endless irritation at Discount Compost. The T-Dragon Society card game is a new game from Renegade Game Studios. Designed by Stephen Ellis and Tyler Tinsley, this game is an introductory deck builder based off of a webcomic by Kate O'Neill, with additional art by Josh T. McDowell. As T-Dragon Society is rated for 10+, I thought it would be an excellent opportunity for my daughter to learn this game and to teach it to me. So, here she is to help share her opinion on the game with us. What is the T-Dragon Society card game about? It's about taking care of tiny little T-Dragons. Each dragon starts with its own growth and mischief cards. Growth cards are the things that the dragon needs, such as feeding, grooming, sleeping, and entertaining. While mischief cards, like Bite, Picky, Bored, and Grumpy, result in losing growth cards. Sounds interesting. And can you give us a quick overview of how the game plays? So on growth cards are a certain amount of points. You can use these points to buy cards from the market. Then these cards can help you later on. Some cards have more points on them that you can use for buying even more cards, while others can protect you. For example, if you draw a bite, that results in losing a grooming, but if you have gloves, then you don't have to lose that grooming. That sounds good. So, as a basic deck builder, how do you win the T-Dragon Society card game? The easiest way to win is by using memory cards. You use growth points to buy these cards just like you do with market cards. Some of these cards help you by getting you more cards or more points, and others can just be annoying, but all of them are worth a lot of points at the end of the game. So, the theme was a big reason why I ordered this game for us, and I've since ordered the book and given it to you to read. Do you feel that the game overall represents the book? 
Yes, it does involve the storyline, but I think it does a good job at saying, "Hey, you've got a tea dragon. You need to take care of it. You want to prevent this. You want to get that." I also love how the creator used pictures from the book on the cards, and how those pictures show people that look different and have different abilities and backgrounds. And as of the dragons. In the dragon profile section of the book, it sort of ties into their abilities. Like Jasmine has abilities with grooming, which shows Jasmine tea dragons are some of the most careful about grooming. Ruibos Entertainment. They're one of the few tea dragons that enjoy playing. Chamomile is the most relaxed and sleepy dragon. And ginseng loves to eat a lot. So I gave you Tea Dragon Society the game the day it arrived, and asked you to learn the game and see if you could teach it to me, as the game is rated for ten plus, just to see you know if it is age appropriate. How was that learning experience? I really thought that it was not that difficult to learn. There were some rules that didn't exactly make sense to me. But once I got through those rules, I figured it out pretty quickly. I really enjoyed how, along with a written instruction booklet, like most board games had, they also had a little comic book explaining how to play. I thought that was really cool. In our personal experience playing the game, I found it a little much for your younger brother, who's seven. And maybe a tad long. What are your thoughts on this? So, for a two-player game, it took us about forty minutes to play, which I agree is sort of long. But I feel like it really gets a lot into that. And for the age, honestly, I'd say nine and up would be a good age, and I agree it was a little too much for our seven-year-old brother. Overall, I really enjoyed the game, despite you know the length and stuff. I thought it was a really good introductory to deck building. I thought the art was great. Really, kind of helps bring in the narrative. Helps bring in maybe those preteens who might be interested in the、uh, dragons or the web comic. What were your final thoughts on the game? I really, really enjoyed it, and I would recommend it to anyone who likes dragons and tea and deck building. I really enjoyed it a lot. Okay, so that's the Tea Dragon Society card game. If you have any further questions or comments about this game or anything else, you're welcome to reach me on Twitter at Mike Grizzly. And thank you for helping me review this game. You're welcome. Hello, Five by listeners. It's Ruth here, and this week I wanted to talk about Gravwell: Escape from the Ninth Dimension. Designed by Corey Young, this chaotic game was originally published by Cryptozoic back in 2013. It's since moved to Renegade Game Studios, who started publishing in 2014. And regardless of which edition you have available, what you'll get inside the box is a game guaranteed to twist and warp your brain in the most delicious way. At its heart, Gravwell is a race for two to four players, but this is a race game unlike any other I can think of. And that's part of why it continues to hit the table years after being added to my collection. 
Each player's ship begins the game trapped within a strange dimension, having somehow survived the trip through a black hole. Desperate to find their way home, players need to harness the odd physics of their surroundings, using the gravity of both floating debris and their opponent's ships to slingshot themselves through the warp gate at the end of the board's spiraling track. But the exit home is somewhat unstable and will close after the first ship passes through, so players are racing each other to get there. But it's not a typical race, as most of the time players are forced to move towards their nearest source of gravity. This means that, in Gravwell, getting too far out in front typically means you're about to find yourself speeding uncontrollably towards the singularity in which you started, so players have to balance staying close enough to their competition to be able to move in the right direction, while positioning themselves for the final sprint when conditions finally line up. The game ends either when someone reaches the warp gate or the end of a sixth round, at which point whoever's closest to the finish line wins. Each round has two phases, an initial draft followed by a series of turns in which fuel cards, also known as mining cards, are played and resolved. The name of the cards simply depends on which edition you have, but they play the same regardless. The 26 cards in the deck each represent an element from A through Z, and each also gives 1 to 10 spaces worth of movement. But the cards also come in three flavors which decide how you move. The majority are green standard fuel cards which cause your ship to move towards the nearest source of gravity. In addition, the purple repulsor movement cards move you away from that nearest source, while the teal tractor beam cards don't move you at all, but instead move everything else on the board a number of spaces towards your own ship. Each turn, played cards are going to be revealed simultaneously and then resolved in alphabetical order, an order almost guaranteed to screw up everybody's plans more often than not. Unless you're playing an extremely early or late letter, you're often pinning your hopes and resolving your movement at the perfect moment, without an awful lot to base those hopes upon. This leads to plenty of chaos and laughter as things go wrong, along with some amazingly satisfying moments when your desperate plan actually works out. Each player does have the ability to use an emergency stop to cancel a fuel card before it activates, but since you can only do this once per round and you'll be playing out your entire hand of six cards, deciding whether to use it or save it can be pretty tricky. One of the things I really like about Gravwell is the semi-open draft that starts each round. Pairs of cards are dealt out until there are three times as many pals as there are players. Each player will draft an order from last to first place until they have the six cards they'll be playing in the round. But since each pair consists of one face up and one face down card, you and your opponents only know half of the cards you're actually getting. This leads to some Hail Mary drafting situations when you're really hoping for luck in the unknown cards. It means you can never be quite sure if an opponent has the one card guaranteed to screw you over. I'm not a card counter by any means, but the fact that not all cards are used each round, and the fact that often you know someone has a tractor beam but not if they're going to be able to use a repulsor, well it leads to a level of uncertainty I enjoy. Rounds are quick, and the game itself takes roughly 20 to 30 minutes to play, so this high amount of randomness in the draft along with the outright chaos in the resolution doesn't actually bother me at all. I've played Gravwell with gamers and family members alike, and I've had great times with both. The more players you have, the more chaotic and less strategic things are, but I've enjoyed it at every count. The only issue I actually have with the game, well, it's teaching the damn thing. At its core, it's pretty simple. Select cards from the pool till you have six, then play the cards and move your ships. For less experienced gamers, the concept of the half-hidden draft and the card resolution order aren't usually a big deal either. But explaining how movement resolves and how to determine your nearest source of gravity gets tricky. So typically I end up talking through a few sample turns and then teaching as we go through the first round, something I'm not typically most comfortable at. But Grav 
Snowfall is a game that needs to be experienced to be understood. Learning from an experienced player is definitely the way to go if possible. So if you can get players over the initial hurdle of having their brain warped as they figure out what direction they're even going in, what you get is a fast-playing, easily set-up race game that I've been able to play everywhere from a dimly lit bar to a large gaming convention. It's a decently portable game, although if I could get the infamous Travwell, a gorgeous wooden travel version, well, I'd be ecstatic. My copy's holding up well after a lot of play, and when I finally wear the thing out, there's a good chance we'll immediately replace it, even if I do prefer my original box art. So I highly recommend checking it out if it sounds at all interesting. Just know that your brain might end up feeling a bit mushy by the end of your interstellar trip. And until next time, you can find me on sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Rugal Gaviola. Today I'm looking at Ubango, designed by Gregors Rechtman, with art by Nicholas Neubauer, and published by Cosmos in 2003. Ubongo was covered by Mason Weaver in episode 9 of the 5 by Ubongo is a real-time puzzle game for 1-4 to four players in which your goal is to solve puzzles as fast as you can, thus earning gems of various point values. A round consists of one puzzle and the game is 9 rounds long. Each player receives a set of 12 polyominoes, think Tetris-shaped pieces, and draws one random puzzle board. On the standard puzzle board side, the puzzle is solved by placing 3 of the Tetris-shaped pieces, while on the reverse advanced side, the puzzle is solved by placing four pieces. A player turns over the one-minute sand timer and rolls a six-sided die. On the die are symbols that correspond to a row of Tetris shapes on your board that are used to solve your puzzle. Your puzzle consists of an empty shape that you're trying to fill in completely with your allotted pieces. Once you do, you shout Ubongo and wait until others finish theirs or time runs out. The player who shouted Ubongo first receives a three-point blue gem. Second place receives a one-point brown gem. All players who solve their puzzles in the allotted time get to draw one random gem from the bag, including the first and second place finishers. Red gems are worth four points, blue are three, green are two, and brown gems are one point each. If you didn't solve your puzzle in time, then no gems for you. Players discard their puzzle boards, draw new ones, then start a new round. After nine rounds, players add up the point values of their collected gems, and the most points wins. Ubongo combines two of my favorite game mechanisms, puzzle solving and real-time action. My love of puzzles comes from my mom, who's always loved to do jigsaw puzzles. It's a hobby that the rest of my family enjoys too, both as a group and by ourselves. I'm a big fan of real-time games, since they usually mean I'm always involved in the action. While I like brain-burning games where you analyze and plan your current and future turns, I love the fast-paced play and immediate gratification of real-time games. Since everybody has their own unique puzzle board, it does you no good to watch what your opponents are doing. Some may see this as multiplayer solitaire, but I like having my own puzzle to work on. The game's interaction comes through the race against your opponents, since first and second place get extra gems, which means extra points. I like that as long as you complete your puzzle within the time limit, you get something. Even if you're last to solve a puzzle, it's a nice consolation drawing a four-point red gem that'll keep you close to the leaders. Yes, this adds a bit of randomness, but it's an effective catch-up mechanism. Theme-wise, Ubongo means brain in Swahili, and the graphics are meant to evoke Africa. Kudos to the designers for choosing a non-Eurocentric theme when they could have gone with nearly any theme for their game. I also appreciate how easy it is to include players of all skill levels. Children can easily compete with adults by having them use the standard three-piece puzzles while the adults use the advanced four-piece puzzles. You can also have the children pick out their pieces before the timer starts. 
Or you can require expert players to only use their non-dominant hand. Officially, Ubongo is supposed to take 25 minutes, but depending on the number of players, you can easily play a game in much less time. I've played 2 and 3 player games in 15 minutes, which seems like the right amount of time. There are several expansions and re-implementations that build on the basic gameplay. Ubongo Extreme, which uses hexagonal shapes and puzzles. Ubongo 3D, which uses 3D pieces. And Ubongo Duel, which tweaks the basic rules for a two-player game. I haven't played any of these, but based on the original game, I'd try any of these in a heartbeat. There's also a solo game, which is simply you challenging yourself to do as many puzzles as you can within a predetermined amount of time. One bummer about the game. The gems are not colorblind friendly. Since they're used only for keeping score though, these could be swapped out for different colored gems or replaced with cardboard chits. When I play, I have my opponents tell me how many of each color I have so I can tally my score. It's a shame that Cosmos has been publishing this game for so long and still hasn't addressed this issue. Hopefully they'll choose different gems in future editions. Still, I believe Ubongo will continue to be embraced by future generations. It's great for non-gamers since the rules are easily explained and can be one of several lighter games for a casual game night. Of course, if you're not into puzzles or real-time play, then Ubongo is probably a pass. My groups, though, have enjoyed it as a fast abstract game that'll get your brain working, yet it's not a total brain burner. It should be on any gamer's shelves, if only so you can yell, Ubongo! This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by. Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola. That's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Or visit my website, RuelGaviola.com. I really enjoy my day job as a school librarian. I love introducing kids to amazing books in all genres. One of my favorite trends of the past few years is the tendency to bend history into fantasy. One example that comes to mind is Naomi Novik's Fabulous Temeraire series, which envisions dragon riders fighting in the Napoleonic Wars. It's fun to see this trend also in the board game world. Which is why Witches of the Revolution, a cooperative deck builder from Atlas Games, is such a draw for me. Created by designer M. Craig Stockwell, this game envisions a world where persecuted witches fight for their freedom in the American War for Independence. This theme made me so crazy happy. Inundated with an ever-changing row of events, each based on moments in the Revolutionary War, Players try to build an effective deck that can combat any difficulties that may arise. To do this, you can recruit new types of beings, or collect one-time-use relics to help round out your deck. Each witch card has different abilities, and can be used to provide a number of icons towards solving one of the event cards that arrive each turn. Each player can contribute cards from their hand to support the current player, but that limits what they may be able to do on their following turn. Many events require cooperation as the number and type of symbols and interactive way that events in that row compound mean that solving them is often beyond the ability of just one player. Events have symbol costs on them. You must spend cards from your hand to your discard pile to complete event cards discarding them from the event row. Each successful quelling of an event card contributes to accomplishing one of the four goals of the game and gives the current player an objective trophy to be used on a future turn. The events have text at the bottom of each card, which may give some limitations for the card being overcome, or connect in some way, making other cards more dastardly or that card more dangerous the longer it stays on the board. Witches of the Revolution has a unique take on deck building, making the building part very challenging. Each card you buy, you must banish cards to purchase. If you aren't careful, you can whittle your deck away on powerful characters, but picking up your deck to refresh it increases the moon track on the board 
making the cost for successfully quelling event cards a number of icons harder than what is shown on each card. Which means you can buy your way to powerful cards only to discover that every event is now more difficult to overcome. This game is very thematic, yet is built on solid gameplay mechanisms that work together well. No dice rolling is a definite plus. Many co-ops leave you feeling like luck not skill is required for player success. That leaves me cold, and to an extent, this game is not immune from that issue. The order that the event cards pop up can really create situations where gameplay is too easy or way too difficult. The way that you sort out cards to create a deck at the difficulty level that you would like to play is pretty time-consuming and complex for the simple deck builder that this game is at its heart. Other than these two small complaints, I think the game is great. Cleverly illustrated and named cards abound in this game. The objectives in particular are humorously tied with references to facts about the American Revolution that you might not remember from fifth grade social studies. Who knew that Paul Revere suffered from lycanthropy? The art by James Mosingo and Alan Washburn is charming, providing the thematic icing on the cake to a great card-based board game. The card backs are graphically beautiful, and the line-drawn, sepia-toned characters are great choice. Character decks contain diverse characters, not just white men, and being able to play female characters in a game set in this time period feels frankly revolutionary. I really appreciate the attention to detail in this game. The rulebook, a trifold pamphlet, really, is clearly laid out with full-color examples, suggestions for varying the difficulty of play, and even a common questions section. I don't generally like non-book-style rulebooks, but this was one of the best that I have encountered. My husband and I played this game seven times and really enjoyed it, but ultimately it felt like we played the game out, so the game will not likely remain a permanent part of our game library. However, I highly recommend playing this game if and when you can get your hands on it. It's a really fun and rich play experience with a truly unique theme. Too few people are talking about it, and it deserves some buzz. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to hear more from me, please follow me at Kybrarian on Twitter or find me as Cat Library on BGG. Thank you for listening to the Five By. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at Five By Games, like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash five by games, or join our BGG Guild number 2810. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or follow all the links on fivebygames.com. The Five By is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.